Hey everyone, this is Anthony. First off, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas or a Happy Hanukkah or a Happy Kwanzaa or a Happy Festivus or whatever you're celebrating. I hope you're having an awesome holiday season. So this is our first episode being released in a while. We've taken a much-needed break over here at Brain Matters, but we're all very happy to be back. We got a bunch of interviews recorded for you, so we're going to be putting those out as soon as we possibly can. Just as a heads up, we recorded the intro to this episode in the summer, and it's been sitting around for a while. So there's some reference to warm weather that I'm sure many of us are not enjoying right now. But um, yeah, just <laughs> so that doesn't surprise you. Anyways, I just want to say thanks to you all for continuing listening. We will be putting out episodes as soon as we can. Thank you for all your support. Uh, we love you guys. Here's the episode. This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Uh, you're not, We're not in the same room right now, Anthony, are we? We are not. Thank you for, I mean, I knew that, but thank you for letting our audience know. Uh, this is the first time recording a Brain Matters intro across many miles. Uh, you're, yeah. you're currently at New York, in New York City, doing some research at Columbia, right? Sure am. Got re- doing research for the summer and it's been going really great. Although I do miss Austin, I have to admit. Um, Austin so. in the summer is great. I've just been drinking Lone Stars and uh, just getting as much sun as possible. It's been lovely. Uh, so business as usual and drinking Lone Stars. I think that's a pretty good obvious segue to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, yeah. Who did you speak to and what was his research topic? So, by the way, I just want to say we're on episode 50. Big landmark. Oh, I forgot. Let's let, let's just call it out and say congratulations to us, man, 50. And thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah. Another one. We just are just busting off a half hundo. This is... This is two this is twice a quarter of a hundo yeah <laughs> if you can follow that math that was a that was, yeah 50 episodes I, I really thought this would peter out after about seven or eight i didn't really i didn't imagine us doing 50 so um <laughs> i'm ex- i'm thrilled <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh i'm glad you had confidence in this but um anyways uh today in today's episode i spoke with dr fred wolf and he's an assistant professor at uc merced And Dr. Wolf studies mainly how alcohol affects the brain, and he does so by studying fruit flies. Uh, Fruit flies are a very popular animal for scientists to use because it allows you to use so many tricks to manipulate their genes and look at individual neurons and really, really track down something as complicated as alcohol, which um, there's a lot of problems associated with alcohol um, in terms of the impact on society. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of problems. Um, and there's a very complicated neurobiology um, in the reaction to alcohol. And it, it, it's helpful to have a model organism like the fly in which you can breed hundreds and hundreds and you can have all these mutants. And you have a sort of robust experimental system to study lots of little changes in mass. And I think that's where we're headed Right. Yeah, um, that's the adv- that's the certainly the advantage in how they how Dr. Wolf's been able to make a lot of progress in in answering these questions. And so in the episode, we get pretty uh, nitty gritty in terms of um, we're going to talk uh, a lot about the molecular biology of what happens when you drink alcohol. So all you molecular biologists aficionados, uh, you might be able to appreciate some of it. We go a little quick. If you if you get lost at any point, just we'll move on uh, eventually. But uh, just know that the kind of big questions is, you know, how do animals get intoxicated and what, what changes happen in the brain? And I actually took a look at um, his website and he has a really fun video of what a drunk fruit fly looks like. And, you know, it's just your typical fly that's walking around and he starts to walk up a wall and eventually he just kind of falls over an experience that um we all may have had if you've consumed alcohol i've had somewhat some experiences i haven't walked up a wall that hasn't happened but 
<laughs> well, yeah, you haven't. Uh, you're working on your Spider-Man suit at the moment, I think, right? It's yeah coming together. Yeah. The uh, my stitch work could use improvement, um, but I think I got the patterns and the colors down. So someday, someday. But I would say if you want to see how Doctor Wolf studies, it, definitely check out his website. Look up Fred Wolf Neuroscience, and you'll find it. And there's a pretty. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty amusing. You know, watching a little fly get drunk and kind of fall over. So yeah, I would, I would recommend it. Uh, have a lone star before you do perhaps. Yeah. And maybe, maybe you should before you listen to this episode, but just remember, do it responsibly. Uh, well, all that sounds great. Let's get to this 50th episode of brain matters. And, uh, do you think we're going to be able to perk remotely? Like from, from afar? Ooh. Um, that's a great question. There's going to be a lag. Um, so it's not going to be like simultaneous, but all right, I'll perk and then you perk. How about that? Okay. I'll, okay. Ready? What am I looking for? Am I, is it a sound? You know how a cochlea is perked at this point. Okay. Don't play coy with me on the 50th episode. Okay. I know. All right, here I go. It happened. Oh, I think I felt that. You felt it? Okay, good. It still works over the distance. Good, yes. Okay, everyone, perk them cochlea, and let's get to the episode. Every time I try to sleep, I am back there. In the bleachers, a snow-cone summer. My mouth is full of dirt, and you're rounding second. your research uh, how long have you been it's uc merced uc merced merced okay uc merced opened in 2005 and so it's the first new research university mm-hmm. in the 21st century i believe it's still the only new one oh, wow. so the you know the nice thing about that is you can start fresh with technology that is this century rather than last century yeah so just like hardware and yeah, everyone the, the there buildings is... are all fresh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything is new. there's not ghosts of of long lost scientists yeah, that have yeah. been there and so and it's also a very small community still it, it still functions a bit like a private university because we only have about six thousand students now and yet it's supported by the uc system sure. the uc system is really very large and very effective system for doing research and so we're we kind of tap into that expectation for our research there, even though it's new. So it's kind of a little bit of two worlds at this time. And the aspect about this university that could be interesting is that we attract an incredible number of people from underserved communities. So we have huge Hispanic population, Native American population, African American population. Is it much more diverse than the other UC? It's kind of much school? more yeah. diverse, actually. It's one of it may actually be the most diverse university. I don't want to get quoted on that one, but it, it's a very, <laughs> very diverse place, and we're working on recruiting faculty that reflect that. Now. That's fantastic. So, yeah. That's not a topic we've actually ever talked about on this program, really. So. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, there was just even a an Atlantic article about, you know, basically misrepresentation. Usually it's at the highest level, at the professor That's level. That's correct. That's it, where it all drops off, basically. It takes time for things to change. So I, I reflect the past, quite honestly. I'm, I'm a white male and uh, my students are not. But when I was going through school, that was the common situation. So there's always this lag because of the amount of time it takes to get to this position. So, you know, another 10 years, what UC Merced looks like is what most schools are going to look like. Cool. And I That's... think it's it's great because it actually brings in 
culturally, it's very interesting and different. It's different from the way that I experienced the university, and it brings different perspectives, and it's wonderful. That's interesting. I think this podcast, one of the goals of it is to reach out to people to give them an idea that becoming a lead scientist, you know, a principal investigator in science is a long journey. It's difficult, <laughs> but it is also, it is possible for anyone that really, you know, puts a lot of work into it and also gets really lucky. And so there's like this really cool path. And you, you even just kind of mentioned that your path to getting to, you know, science has been a little bit roundabout. So could we like start from even the very basic beginnings, like where you grew up and where your family history is like? So I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a big university town. My dad was a professor there and we lived, what, three blocks from the university. All the fraternities were down the end of the street. I was in the professor's ghetto. It was, uh, you know, my friend's parents translated Chinese history. They wrote Middle English dictionaries. It was a very intellectual kind of place to grow up. My family in particular had kind of a disdain for intellectualism, though. So we, <laughs> it was, you, know, it, it, yeah. you get all types of people in all places. So my parents did not encourage us at all to go into the university life they wanted us. It was kind of a reflection of the 60s and 70s where you should follow your dreams and do whatever you want. It okay. wasn't really you should go out and make money and be successful or, or take the university route. So my brothers and sisters really went into blue collar jobs and it was the guy who stayed in school. So, um, I, I got to undergraduate. I wanted to study computer science. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be an artist. <laughs> Don't constrict at that point, I think. Yeah, well, I, I didn't constrict to a level that you probably should not <laughs> work at. Did you Did you um, dabble and then all those kinds of things? I or did. At least like, I did. Cool. And I actually followed up the computer science aspect of it to a pretty far extent. And then decided I could do that on my own. I didn't need a class to teach me. But biology was a total mystery to me. I took those classes and I realized that the professor was telling me stuff that I couldn't get out of the books and the books were giving me stuff that the professor wasn't telling me and so it seemed like a bigger world to me and a real world and that computer science is really fun everything it's a very creative thing to do it's intellectual but it's it's not real and biology is real and that one really just grabbed me so um, I loved it I converted into that late in my undergrad so I was very underprepared so I got lucky and found a technician's job in one of the local labs and I worked there for a couple of years. Was there like a class that you took that changed that like flipped the switch to biology or was it? Not really. No, yeah. I can't give you one of those origin stories, unfortunately. Oh, that's all good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if there was one that did it, it would be genetics class, but it wasn't really just that. It was also, I was taking genetics and I was um, actually in a work study program and was working in a lab at that point. And so I worked as a tech for a couple of years and really learned how to do molecular biology there. And okay, so it was a molecular lab? It was a molecular lab. In, we were still in Ann Arbor? It was still in Ann Arbor. Okay. And we were studying um, how a inflammatory molecule induces gene expression, okay. which is going to become a theme in my <laughs> career here. <laughs> and it was really one of the first labs to really do some of these forward screens for gene expression changes. So could, we, was, could you explain kind of what that what is? Uh, what we were doing was we were taking um, human umbilical vein endothelial cells. Swiss was at a medical school, so okay. you could do those things. And we were giving them tumor necrosis factor, which is this pro-inflammatory cytokine. And it's something that's involved in affecting those particular cells to cause inflammatory responses. Mm -hmm. And this is an early response, right? It's innate kind it's of immune in, response. It's an innate response, yeah. So they just do a signal transduction pathway, cause genes to get regulated. We wanted to know how that inflammation process worked. So what we did is we took cells that were treated and untreated, um, made libraries of all the transcripts in plasmids. We express those plasmids in bacteria. You plate those bacteria out on a million bacterial plates. <laughs> you do um, 
filter lifts off of those and you do differential hybridization of molecules to one versus the other. Okay. And you can find genes that are in this one and not that one. Okay. And you go back and pick those colonies and you find out what gene that is. And it's the old manual way of doing what is RNA-seq these yeah, days. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, um, it's crazy how far you know technology has advanced. It's amazing. Yeah. And yet you're still asking the same question. Yeah. That's also the other thing that's amazing is how much things change and how much they don't change. Really, the questions are the same thing. The it's technique just, has, it, has technique improved. technique has improved. It's easier. It becomes part of the toolkit. But it's... Mm -hmm. It's really the same thing. Now, you need, when you ask that question, you need a skill set, but um, maybe one person could do it all. Whereas that's, back then, it would true. be a whole lab that's devoted, right? Like you would yeah. your whole job. For, yeah. Yeah, or I'm assuming you weren't the only one probably I was doing not it. the only one. And the amount of radiation that we got exposed <laughs> to, you wouldn't want to get exposed to. <laughs> so while I was there as a technician, uh, Paul Sternberg, who's professor at Caltech, he studies C. elegans, development and many other aspects about evolution and things of that nature. He came and gave a talk and C. elegans genetics, especially the way he was doing it, was so precise with the questions and answers that you could develop. It basically gave me a window into what was possible outside of molecular biology using forward genetic techniques. Mm -hmm. So in an and, organism that's, you know, moving around and then I'm not sure at the yeah. time were they doing, you know, able to map the unique of certain neurons or yeah they, they, were, they do that now they were, but, yeah. they were. Uh, he was asking questions of really basic developmental questions so how do various structures develop in the worm and doing processes called epistasis analysis that's classic in genetics where you can place the function of one gene upstream of another gene and so you can build pathways that way so he showed to me through his lecture that you could do really precise things and completely answer a question through that, which was something that had been messing up to that point. That sent me to grad school. Did it to Caltech? or <laughs> That didn't send me to Caltech, it sent me to Berkeley. To Berkeley. So I just applied to a bunch of places, Berkeley accepted me, so I went. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> and they did have a C. elegans guy there. Um, and I ended up going to his lab after doing rotations. Um, so that's John Gariga. He's came out of the Horvitz lab, which was a basis for a huge amount of this elegance research that's done around the world. Was that a um, Nobel Prize winner too? He's or? a Nobel yeah. Prize winner. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, for for the mapping of all the yeah, it was really for the astounding amount of progress that he made on molecular genetics and classical genetic pathways yeah. the actual nobel prize i think was for a programmed cell death pathway so this person john gariga he studied how the nervous system develops and I had had in my mind that I wanted to do something in the nervous system for a long time. It actually came from a poster from MIT from when I was in high school, which showed a neuron growing across a chip. A like a, wait, like <laughs> yeah, a silicone like a, like chip? Like a silicone chip, yeah. And really? I thought, yeah. what a wild concept. And was this an abstract thing or is this no, a true? No, it was real. It was a real neuron. Yeah. It's a real neuron. It was a real, you know, it was an early IC chip. So it was, you could tell what parts of the circuit were what, but it was, okay. I thought it was conceptually really cool. And I sci-fi and it, it kind of got at the idea that information was in both of those things. And I think that's what really keyed me. And I thought, okay, maybe the brain is actually a circuit. And you have a, you have a computer science little background, I guess. A little so bit, maybe, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I didn't really think of it that clearly when I was that age, but that's really what it was. So, okay. And, you know, and that just was down there somewhere forever. So at Berkeley, I got to finally study the nervous system. It was kind of in one of the simplest possible ways because it was development and we were looking at how migrations were guided. Okay, so how in one neuron, when it's born, how does it find its like That's arbors? Right. How does it make it? Yeah, which is still a huge question. We don't, it, no. is, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, his lab helped figure out some of those aspects. He was particularly interested in what the long-range cues that guided things along the anterior-posterior axis. And the idea, right, is that it was probably some kind of molecule that almost like is an attractive factor, right, That's to right. these um, right. to these growing right. axons. And I, I actually don't, I'm not too familiar with them. But Yeah, that's good. It, it, it's a, it's 
a complicated process. The part that we were working on, it turned out there's actually an intrinsic factor in the cell that's migrating that's able to regulate its ability to put receptors on the surface mm -hmm. to detect those cues. And that was what helped guide it. And the cool thing about that one is if you, you can modulate it up or down and you can change the direction of the neurons. It's something about how much information it's able to take in that drives where it's going to go. So then looking for a postdoc, I was all over the place. <laughs> I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in neurobiology, so I was looking at um, post-pathogen interactions. Um, there were you pretty sure you're like, so you're like, I want to do postdoc. Were you pretty confident at that point or was it? That was interesting. Was it? So I was actually getting, rec this was doing during the biotech boom in the mid nineties, actually late nineties, late nineties. A lot of people were setting up companies. A lot of people were testing how model organisms could potentially contribute to corporate progress. And so they were hiring a lot of people like me and I was really tempted to go. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I think I'm, I'm at my base, I'm an academic, so I really like the basic questions. And so I decided, so I'll just go do a postdoc and come back and do industry afterwards if the postdoc doesn't work out. Turns out that you're at your most saleable right after you finish your PhD. So people who might be considering industry, you might want to think about that. So then I was just looking around for either, I wanted to go to either a flyer or worm lab that was going to be doing host pathogen interactions or something physiological. Really, I wanted to do something physiological. That was what I learned during my search for a postdoc. And one of the labs that I applied to was Ulrike Heberlein's lab at UCSF. She had been studying eye development, which was a classic thing to do in Drosophila. A lot of the major signaling pathways were found through screens for things that affected eye morphology. She was transitioning her lab from that development to studying alcohol and the genetics of alcohol and flies. And I went there and I got totally captivated during my interview by the processes that they were doing. And she's a super, super creative scientist who essentially created a field. And so um, I got accepted into that lab, fortunately. And, and you, you mean the field of using, you know, looking at the molecular uh, contributions to addiction? Is that the molecular contributions to addiction was her particular contribution to that? The fly field had been working on the genetics of learning and memory for some time. They had just gotten to the point where they were cloning the genes that were controlling learning and memory processes. Ulrike came in and decided that another technology, which was using transposons that were able to hop around the genome and then lock them down in particular locations, those cause mutations in particular genes. And she could use those to generate fly strains that had individual mutations in them, screen those. The beauty of that is that your mutation is now marked. And with these transposons, you can use molecular tricks to figure out exactly where they're inserted very quickly, and you didn't have to do all the mapping anymore. So it made going from a phenotype to a gene much shorter. And so she combined that technique and studying alcohol together and basically created this field. Okay, can we talk about how we think alcohol works in the brain? Sure. If, if there was probably a huge field before even that aspect, but maybe not. <laughs> Actually, no, don't there know. is. Yeah. There is. So... I'm very much a geneticist and a neurobiologist. I am really not a neuroscientist. Most of the studies in alcohol research were on either cells in culture or on mouse uh, electrophysiological preparations or mouse behavior. And there was especially with pharmacological manipulations, people made a great deal of inroads into understanding what types of receptors are involved in the processes of inebriation, preference, um, relapse, and those types of things. There was very little dimensionalizing that type of data to understand the complicated processes that are happening in the brain that alcohol is engaging. Mm -hmm. So we were at a stage where we knew that alcohol affected the way that neurons fired. We knew some of the receptors that were getting impinged upon. Um, there's a vast knowledge of the psychology behind alcohol drinking. And there was a huge lack in understanding what the real molecular basis was. People were beginning to make some molecular 
inroads in soul culture at that point. But it, it was really slow going. You know, every, everything that people found out was very hard one. So people understood that cyclic AMP signaling in cells was impacted by alcohol. And we knew a little bit about pharmacologically that you could manipulate the effects of alcohol on organisms. That is a singular pathway out of a very complicated system. And even within a cell, it's a pathway in the context of an organism where there is millions, billions of neurons moving from that to where the function was, was just hard. That was a major contribution of the genetics, especially moving it into model organisms that moved things forward. Why would it have been so difficult to determine where alcohol is binding? It's like we have, we know that when you drink a lot, there's these very particular types of behaviors that happen. That's correct. That's right. And so people were making much more progress on other addictive drugs like cocaine because they knew it bound to the dopamine transporter. Mm -hmm. And that tells you where to look in the brain, right? So we're going to be looking at dopamine neurons. We know that when it binds to the transporter, you can then measure the effects on those dopamine neurons and notice that when cocaine's around, they dump out more dopamine. Okay, mm-hmm. So they're hyperdopaminergic. With alcohol, you don't have a known target. There are some places that it's known to bind and affect the function of proteins, but it's not a simple one-to-one relationship like it is with most other drugs of abuse. The compound is very small. It probably follows water in its distribution through the body. It distributes as soon as you take a drink, gets absorbed through the gut, it goes everywhere in your body, it can affect everything. So you're not getting access to specific locations in the brain and figuring out what's happening there. It's happening to every cell and it's the coordinate effects. And it's amazing, as you just mentioned in all those behaviors, how repeatable the behavior is from individual to individual for such a non-specific molecule, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's that still remains a huge mystery. We're you know we're starting to make a little bit of progress on yeah, that. Yeah, progress started getting making because we started getting into like advances in the, in the cell part of it. culture. And people started controlling what how they were delivering the alcohol in better ways. Also, so it's it has very dose dependent effects. Low doses have specific types of effects on behavior and physiology higher doses have different effects the pattern that you take the alcohol in has as much of an effect on your ability to get addicted to alcohol as the amount that you take in Mm -hmm. so those are added complications and people started getting a handle on that in the last 15 to 20 years they really figured out how to make model organisms take in as much alcohol as humans do in a way that's more naturalistic and that helped develop these models to be accessible to genetics and physiology better. Could we talk about some of the key players that have emerged or some of, you mentioned maybe cyclic AMP pathways, or maybe we could even, if you want to talk about your research in particular, if that would be more. So we can talk about my particular research because it, for especially for alcohol, the first time you take alcohol, you drink it, you get drunk, you get all those effects but you don't get addicted from the first time you do it. You have to take it repeated times to get there. Okay, Something like heroin, you can take it once and get addicted to it or cocaine. So there's different addiction liabilities there. There are shared mechanisms underlying all forms of addiction. That's something that we've learned that's really quite substantially true. One of those is the dopamine hypothesis. Okay, so cocaine affects dopamine release, heroin affects dopamine release, alcohol affects dopamine release. So areas in the brain called the mesolimbic dopaminergic system is clearly a target for multiple drugs of abuse, and it clearly is involved in the addiction process. Okay. And this is making the association, but maybe making it uh, hyper-associative or d- maybe dysregulating the sort of like drug-seeking and, and reward circuit, there, there right? There continue to be very heated arguments about exactly what the functions of these circuits are. Sure. And as we refine further down, be able to manipulate individual neurons and under very tight temporal control, we're learning more and more. It might, we cannot maybe simplify yeah. it that so much. One, some people will say it's reward pathways. Other people will say it's a reinforcing pathway, which is a little bit different concept. That's the ability to f- form a positive association with something. 
Another way of looking at it is a concept of incentive salience, which is the value that something in the environment attains, which is a little bit different than a reinforcing property. Okay. So those are some of the ways that people think about that particular aspect of the system. There are many other brain regions that are also involved, and they all together work together in some way that we don't understand at all. Okay, so that's one commonality with drugs of abuse. Another one is this idea of gene regulation. So the way to cause an effect with a drug is to impact particular cellular pathways. The way to have a lasting effect is to affect the function of those neurons over a long period of time. The best candidate for doing that is changing gene expression, which can change the properties of those neurons in subtle or not so subtle ways. The main thing there is gene transcription. So gene transcription, so you take an acute dose of a drug of abuse that has an effect through many different pathways on gene transcription. That gene transcription happens, that changes something about the nature of those neurons. Okay, That gene transcription is done, but that change in the neurons isn't necessarily done. Okay. Next time you take the drug, you may affect that gene transcription again, but you've changed the way that that neuron's already functioning. It may not affect the gene transcription the same way the second time. Okay. okay. So it leaves a lasting imprint, so or at least like leaves, a, yeah. leaves some sort of chemical change to those neurons that changes the way that it's going to respond to that drug in the future. Okay. That's one major aspect of the way that alcohol and other drugs of abuse are changing the way your nervous system is working. I'm kind of avoiding the epigenetic statement here because epigenetics to me is similar to what we're studying with this molecule SIR2, where we think that this histone deacetylase, which would normally close chromatin down, that's getting downregulated by alcohol, so it allows chromatin to open up. It's facilitating gene expression, okay? So much of what epigenetics is doing is actually allowing changes to occur. It's not the change itself. And so it's still the transcription factors, really, that are doing the regulation. It's the epigenetics is changing what can be regulated. So that's the way I'm conceptualizing it now. And I think the, the field is kind of conceptualizing it that way as well. So... It would be nice to eventually talk about SIR2, I guess, since that has been oh, sure. a thing of yours. Okay. But you can, if you, we can get there if you want. So yeah. I think it's a, an aspect of the story. So I think the, the real take-home story from that is its ability to facilitate gene transcription. The reason I'm saying that, and I think this is going to become a much more common motif across signaling pathways that regulate transcription. There was another example recently in actually an innate immunity <laughs> where the classic innate immune signaling pathway, which is the TLR pathway, it normally causes changes in interleukin expressions to allow inflammatory response to occur. Okay, so that pathway has been worked out for a million years. It's a through an NF-kappa B-based transcription factor that will bind and cause those IL interleukins to be produced. Turns out there's actually an alternate pathway that's induced at the same time that goes through a ubiquitination type pathway that then affects a histone demethylase. And that histone demethylase gets stabilized by this pathway. It goes in and it demethylates genes and it permissively allows those NF-kappa Bs to come in and produce things. Okay. So we're seeing essentially what I think is an analogous thing happening in alcohol responses with a different set of factors. So we think that alcohol is acting through this sirtuin to basically allow this chromatin to open and allow this gene expression to occur. Okay. And would those and those target genes are then the question, like where does the... Um, right, that's right. Giving naive flies alcohol, downregulates SIR2, opens up the chromatin, allows expression of a number of genes. A subset of those genes seem to be involved in synaptic function. And that group of genes seems to be functioning to allow synapses to become more active. This is a pretty obvious way that alcohol could be affecting the way the nervous system is communicating. We don't think by any means that this is the only way that it's functioning, and we have a lot of work to do to understand how this gene regulation is really impacting the way the neurons are communicating. But it makes intuitive sense that alcohol does, there's a lot of work done electrophysiologically that shows that 
synapses change both on the presynaptic side and the postsynaptic side with alcohol. This provides a way that these synapses could be changing for hours or days. And so that could change the way that information is flowing through the system. It could be to compensate for the unexpected way that the nervous system is being used by alcohol coming in. Since it goes everywhere, it's going to be essentially doing an unpatterned thing to the brain compared to what's normally going through the brain. So now it's going to compensate for that, take the alcohol away. It's no longer functioning in that unpatterned way, but it has a new set of connections. So what is it going to do with that? It's going to put you into potentially into a dysphoria and cause you to drink more. And so it may be a reinforcing thing through that type of mechanism. That's total speculation. Uh, we're, we're working with the hypothesis that gene expression actually is impacting the way that these neurons are communicating with each other. And that's going to be important for the way the nervous system gets changed. So it seems like you have, you're, you're looking for these larger regulators that play a role in unlocking genes that would potentially allow for things like toxic tolerance or preference. It could be one or the other. It seems like it could be regulating a ton of different effects. So do you have, what would be a, a slam dunk experiment in terms of like figuring out? The, let me, let me, so there, yeah. one, one really good criticism of the type of work that we're doing is that alcohol will regulate a lot of genes and not all of them are important. How do you find the important ones? Yeah. Okay. So one way you can do that is the type of experiments that we've been doing where we manipulate those genes in particular cells and ask the, what the outcome is in terms of behavioral plasticity. Another thing that we've just started toying with is that there are a number of risk factors for developing alcoholism. For example, aggressiveness, um, social isolation, these types of things correlate with people developing alcoholism at a later time. One hypothesis is that those pathways are actually shared with alcoholism in some way, mm. and that you can use these two things to learn about each other. So that that's kind of where we're going with this, is we'd really like to start using some of these comorbid type of behavioral things and ask how these two pathways may interact. That's, I think, has some long-term implications for about the coding capacity of the brain for different types of behavior. So that's kind of like the the big fuzzy thing that we're hoping to okay. work on. Are, are you hoping that you could see if animals that would be more aggressive would maybe have already unlocked those types of genes that alcohol exposure Absolutely. would have done in its first experience? Absolutely. Okay, I see. Absolutely. And if you can, you know, aggression is going to, again, like alcohol, it's going to be coded in a very complex way in the brain. But maybe if you do a Venn diagram with alcohol, you can find some little subset there that yeah. actually has a shared function. That's totally cool. Yeah. So. Awesome. That's cool. <laughs> You did some, you were doing thirst circuits and things like that. Would you like to talk somewhere like how that came about? And sure. yeah. So in humans where alcoholism really is, that's where alcoholism is. It isn't in a fruit fly. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a human process. What happens there is it's a chronic relapsing thing. So alcoholics will abstain from alcohol for a while and then they'll get back to seeking it and they'll drink a ton of it. They will ignore all their social norms. They will disregard friends and family in order to drink or take whatever other drug there is. There's a really strong motivational part to seeking the drugs of abuse. And so we think that part of the way that alcoholism is working is it's tapping into that motivational system, either through a pathological type of change to that motivational system itself or through circuits that normally regulate it. So one way to get at that is to try to conceptualize what motivation really is in terms of biological circuitry. We're trying to do that by using very clear cases of motivation in the fruit fly where an animal is performing a motivated function and asking how we can manipulate that either through genetics or through altering circuit properties. Okay. okay. So basic motivations, you know, hunger, thirst, uh, sleep, you're looking for a behavior in a fruit fly that is at one of those states. And if you can understand that, can we then sort of overlay the alcoholism or how alcohol affects those pathways on top of it? We yeah. can, to a certain extent, yeah. So motivation could be coded in a unitary way in 
all brains or it could be coded in many different ways and there's probably going to be some sort of mechanism to make a decision about what motivated behavior needs to be executed at some point uh, i kind of favor that ladder model at the moment it makes more sense that you would need multiple motivation systems but you do need to choose a behavior otherwise you are going to get nothing done yeah. So at some level, alcohol is going to be impinging something about the motivation systems themselves or the decision-making process. If we can describe a motivational system like uh, seeking water, which is a very strongly motivated behavior, we can try to begin to define in very fine detail how the motivational system works. And then yeah. we can then back up to alcohol and ask how alcohol impinges those. Yeah. Using the fruit fly gives you this massive advantage based on those, like the, what do they call it again? Yeah, Gal, so Gal 4 ua Gal 4 ua It's a binary expression system. Yeah. That's the key thing about it is that it's combinatorial because you can have a library of one side the drivers and another library of responders and you could theoretically do a full checkerboard analysis with those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so each of those lines is differentially expressed in a different subset of neurons, correct? The drivers are. The drivers yeah, the driver, are. The, yeah. the Galford drivers are. This field has really exploded in the flies in recent times. So that is what really changed fly research is the Galford UAS, along with the transposons. They went together. It opened us up to manipulating individual cells in individual ways. A number of very, very creative scientists have added on to that. Now, now we have multiple of those binary expression systems in flies, and we can use them all within the same fly. This is totally cool because you can manipulate a gene in this neuron, and you can manipulate an activity in this neuron, yeah. and you can ask what the relationship is between those things. Or you can manipulate activity in this neuron, activity in that neuron. You can essentially do circuit epistasis in flies now, so we can understand where information is getting passed and how those circuit elements are functioning. It's it's so powerful. People are beginning to do those types of analyses in flies, and it's so it's moving our understanding of behavior ahead at a very rapid pace. An example of that is people have been studying the valence associations in flies where you take a neutral cue and you pair it with a, a strong non-neutral cue and you can transfer it to the neutral cue over time. It's classic stuff. But now we've got a circuit map of very specific neurons that do that process and we're beginning to understand how those synapses in that that circuit in this complicated brain are actually coding for that. So it's it's a real advance forward. That's and, cool. I didn't um, know. Yeah, I was wondering where that field was because that's like... I mean, people are beginning to do real high-quality single-cell stuff, uh, optogenetic and otherwise, in the mouse brain especially. And fear conditioning is really... That's the one's going to fall first. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's why I'm doing it now. <laughs> it's great. Can we get on on about you talking about fruit flies, why you chose that as a system, and what are some of the behaviors of, I guess, a drunk fly? Like, how do you actually measure that type of alcoholism or at least alcohol-related behaviors in a fly? Okay. So why flies? Flies is the first place that people were able to really associate genes and behavior and clone those genes. This was the work of Seymour Benzer back in the 1970s, especially with Ron Kanopka, who used really, really simple behavior, which was a circadian eclosion of the flies. They were able to go from that really simple behavior, a mutagenesis screen to knock out individual genes randomly. And they were able to find the genes at the core of the clock with that. Mm -hmm. That was in fruit flies. And that was the first demonstration of how you could really do genes and behavior. It was in fruit flies. So fruit flies have a long tradition now of being at the forefront of that type of research. Yeah. The advent of techniques to manipulate individual cells in the fly brain has moved that forward again. Additionally, coupling on that is the um, whole genome transcriptome type of experiments, which have allowed us to ask physiological questions about what's happening in the brain. And so now we can couple those two things together in flies. And that really makes flies a great tool for understanding behaviors. 
the behavior aspect is also great because especially working in flies, it's a lot of fun. It's very easy to talk do, about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to do fly behavior. So you, you can breed flies very quickly. The apparatus that you can set up, it's basically up to you creatively what you do. Yeah. So, um, a classic one in the alcohol field was called the inebriometer. So this was a device that to automatically get the flies drunk. Essentially what you yeah. do is you pump. Um, alcohol vapor through this column, flies have a natural tendency to go away from the center of gravity, so they'll walk up. And so flies in a column will stay at the top of the column. As they become um, inebriated, they lose their ability to hang on at the top of the column, and they will slowly fall out of the column. Mm. Count them at the bottom, and you get an illusion profile out. And that yeah. was the inebriometer. That was a very simple way to tell about alcohol sensitivity in flies, and it was a very creative technique for doing that. That was actually developed at UC Davis in the 1980s, I believe, uh-huh. uh, for doing some selective breeding experiments. And uh, the Heberlein lab adopted that to doing forward genetic screens. Another nice thing about fruit flies is when you find a new gene you get to name them and some of the names for alcohol genes got a little creative so (laughs) the one that everyone loves is cheap date which gets stunk very easily yeah you guys have way more fun than (laughs) the other fields so So, um and so then we were actually one of the first labs to start using automated techniques for studying animal behavior, and that was a real advance as well. Yeah, I saw this on your so, on your website. So this yeah. is you was this a, something that you pioneered? Particular? Do you have students or postdocs that did this? Or? Yeah. So this was me being able to combine my programming skills with device building and genetics and things, and so we were able to track where a population of like individuals in a population were at any particular time and we were able to extract some parameters out of their behavior from that. And that must we make uh, life much, much better for the uh, students in your lab. And- that was a real motivation actually. So it was during my postdoc I invented that process and it was because the nebriometer required hundreds and hundreds of flies and it took all day to do the experiments. Yeah. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so so it sure a- it took a lot of effort to make it work, but then once you did, I'm sure it's like... I don't want to take all the credit for yeah. it. So uh, Corey Bargman's lab was directly above us at that time, and Mario De Bono was working there, and he was doing tracking in C. elegans at that time, and we worked with him to develop the whole process. So, yeah. I wonder if there's is there any other components or re- like research trajectories that we haven't touched on that you'd like to highlight or? Yeah. <laughs> so, optogenetics and this process called thermogenetics is changing the way that people study behavior because we can do essentially single neuron manipulations of their activity and look at the behavioral responses. It's getting really excellent because we can now activate and inactivate those neurons. So we can ask both the necessity and sufficiency type arguments about what neurons are really doing in the brain. We can now couple that with gene expression changes at the same time in those neurons. And it's really, the level of detail is just amazing. And it's really only achievable in flies at the moment. Um, so we have this window of opportunity to dive in and really understand lots of different behaviors in really intense detail. From a systems like perspective, I think the fly is the only one where you could probably extract the neurons themselves and then do a screen or like an RNA-seq. So we, we were in the world of genetics and behavior, and we're starting to have to communicate with systems neuroscientists, mm-hmm. psychologists, and people who are interested in cognitive science and we're just getting to the point where we have to think way outside the box to really understand what's going on yeah. and that's really exciting that's that's a lot of fun it's really scary because these people talk different languages yeah but uh, <laughs> you just have to find a common language and that's i guess that really almost like dovetails back into even the very beginning of our talk where having a diverse background seems to be a, a very important and key thing and the the advantages are 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 obvious. I want to make a plug for people who stay within their paradigm as well, because going deep has a lot of power as well. Yeah. So interdisciplinarity is a wonderful thing, and you can see new things with it. Going deep into your own field has equal rewards. Sure. And I think the two of those being equally supported going forward is really important. Yeah. We need. I guess you're right. We need both types we need of both. scientists. We need both. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. And, 
Sometimes people will, if, occasionally, if this is true in my career, is that you kind of are in the trenches and doing work constantly, and every once in a while, something bigger picture pops out. And that's enough to for people to realize that you've been doing something cool for all of those other years. So it can bring people in from those other groups, and that's yeah. a very useful thing. That's so, very true. Yeah, yeah. So. A lot of times things that you were not expecting to to find a wider audience accidentally does so, that's you know, right. kind right. of like what and you're talking that about. Brings, that, that opens up new ideas, and that's fantastic. Yeah. So. Is there anything else besides even your science? Like, I guess, like, personally, do you have... Um, <laughs> How, how do you spend I'm your time outside of science? Professor. I don't have a personal you know, <laughs> We can just stop there. No. <laughs> That'll be the whole podcast. <laughs> and that's, that's Dr. Wolf, guys. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Wolf. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, great, great. Thanks, guys. Awesome. that's going to do it for today's episode. As always, you can go to our website, brainpodcast.com, where we'll have links to the science and scientists that we talked about today. You can also follow us on Facebook and at Brain Podcast on Twitter. And if you like the show, make sure to subscribe on whatever podcasting service you use or leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps. So thanks. The music on today's episode was by Kola Janka. The first song was Snow Cone Summer, and you're listening right now to Posture, a performance. You can check out Kolajanka's music at kolajanka.bandcamp.com, and we'll have links to their music on our website. Thanks again for listening and supporting us through 50 episodes. We'll see you next time.